Thanks, Pam. Does this look right? Let's does, does this look right? No. All right. <clears throat> uh, good morning, church. It is great to be here. It's great to see you here. Um, if you have uh, not met me, or if I have not had the pleasure of meeting you yet, uh, my name is Jonathan. Uh, I'm not the pastor of this church. I get to speak uh, here every now and again. It has admittedly been a little while since my last sermon. Um, but I'm believing that God has a word for each of us, including myself, today. Have you been with us the last, well, last week, and I think it was a, almost a month before that, uh, you'll know that uh, we've been doing a, a series on discipleship um, and looking from the book of Matthew. Uh, unfortunately, the passage I've chosen today is actually not from the book of Matthew, uh, but there is a parallel uh, passage from Matthew, so that's fine, I hope. Right, Joe? Because otherwise I just should... Yeah, it's too late now. Um, <clears throat> and so in case you missed it, uh, we're trying to answer the question, how do we make disciples? How do we disciple others? Uh, hopefully by now you know what the Great Commission is. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. I think it'll be there on the slides. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. <clears throat> Now, before we can answer the question, how do we make disciples, it's important that we're first clear about what a disciple actually is. A disciple, simply, is someone who follows their master, in our case, Jesus. It's someone who learns from their master in such a way that the disciple can begin to do what the master does. I'll give you an example. An apprentice electrician might learn from a more experienced one. The apprentice will follow him as he goes around to people's houses, installing light fittings, air conditioning, repairing wiring, and so on. A good teacher will train his apprentice to do everything that he can also do, with the end goal being that the disciple no longer needs his help. When that apprentice has acquired the necessary skills of the trade, he can in turn go and teach others and train others up to do those same things. So Jesus is in the business of making disciples. He is the master electrician, and we're his apprentices. And as his disciples, it's our job to learn from his example so that we, become, we can become more and more like him in every way. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8.29. <clears throat> For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The clear end goal, as we heard last week, is that we become more and more like his son, Jesus, God's son, Jesus. The term discipleship is the process of following Jesus and leading others to do the same. It's living for Jesus and reproducing that same passion for Jesus in others. And in order to do that, today we're going to look at Jesus and how he taught his disciples. How did he transform them from lowly fishermen into fishes of men? How did he teach them the skills of the trade and how did he produce in them an unshakable and courageous faith? By looking at his example, we will learn firstly how we ourselves can become more like him. And at the same time, we're going to gather insights as to how we can go about producing these qualities in the lives of those around us as well. 
So as we do that, let's ask God for his help that we might understand and learn from his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this wonderful opportunity to open up your word, to read your word, to look at your word, to study your word. But Father, I pray that we do more than that today. I pray that we apply what we learn from your word into our lives. God, we need you to help us to do that. And so Father, I pray that you would do just that. Lord, I pray for everyone here, myself included, that we would hear from you and that God would apply what we learn. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's passage comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 6 and verse 10. And I'm going to invite Yenzi to come and read for us. Thanks, Yenzi. Hello? Okay. Okay, Luke chapter 9. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them the power and authority to drive out all the demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shit. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave that their town and... Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. When the, the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Cheers. <clears throat> All right. So in this passage, Jesus is training his disciples by sending them out on their own short-term mission trip. Jesus gathers all his disciples together and he gives them clear instructions to go from village to village to drive out demons, to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. And he tells them specifically, don't take anything extra with you. Go and rely entirely on the hospitality of complete strangers to meet your needs. And if they don't welcome you, then move on. Find somewhere else to go. So I thought this morning we would try a little exercise. So what I'm going to get you to do, just everyone, can you just please stand up for a second? Very good. Well done. Some of you. Stand up. If you can, of course, that's fine. All right, excellent. And now what I want everyone to do is for the next week, week and a half, maybe two weeks, to go out and proclaim the kingdom. Proclaim the kingdom, heal the sick, drive out demons out in the surrounding suburbs. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to tell you guys. You guys can go to Borkham Hills and Kellyville. You guys here can go to Bella Vista, Norwest. And you guys here to Glenhaven and Cherrybrook. Is that cool? Everyone got that? So we're going to just try that this afternoon. Uh, all you have to do, share the gospel. Heal everyone you see and cast out demons. That's it. Uh, Oh, and one extra thing, if you have stuff, like basically anything, like phones, wallets, keys, cars, children, right, you're just going to have to leave them all here. So if you've got things in your pockets, just put them on the, come on guys, I'm not seeing anyone move here, just just put all the stuff, put them all down on the chair, you're not allowed to take any of that with you. If you've got an extra jumper or anything, you're not allowed to take that either. And now go. Oh, Oh, one other thing. 
If you get rejected by someone, if they're like, no, I don't want to hear from you, you have to move on. Okay, you have to keep going. In order to survive, though, you will need to find someone who is willing to receive your message, to receive the gospel, and then you can stay with them for you know, that night or a couple of nights. All right, does that make sense? Everyone pretty clear on what I'm asking? All right. Cool. That's all I had, guys. I mean... <laughs> All right, so those of you who are bold and faithful enough, I'll see you later. But for the rest of you who are all chicken, you can just all sit down, I guess. It's... I thought I'd see at least one person kind of pretend to go, at least, come on, guys. Like... So how long, you know, if we actually did that, let's just, you know, hypothetically. I don't know why we didn't, but let's say we did, right? How long do you think you would last? How long? If you just went out right now with what you have, put your keys, wallet, phone away, you went out there, you went to Bunnings, you know, you guys went to Bella Vista or whatever, how long would you last, do you think? A couple hours? Do you think you'd even get through the night? I wonder if anyone would be bored enough to do that. Uh, if I'm honest with myself, I don't think I'd last that long. Um, and, and what would you do? Like... I mean, for the next couple of hours, you know, sure, you can go out there, talk to people at Bunnings and, you know, around Castle Hill or whatever, you know, pr- maybe pray for someone who, you know, was on crutches or something like that. That's, you know, I, th- I could imagine some of us doing that. Uh, but what would happen after that? What happened when you got hungry? What would you do for dinner? I guess you'd probably go with that. What would you do for water? Or, I mean, you'd find a tap, I guess, and... You know, and after that, what would you do? What when it gets dark and you know the shops have closed and no one's kind of on the streets? You start going around and, and knocking on doors. Do you think? And let's just take that a little bit further. Let's pretend you know people don't accept you. Well, I mean, when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my place, I'm very suspicious of them. <laughs> now, I'm not going to invite them. In. Well, yeah, I could invite them in, but they're definitely not staying at night. There's no way I'm, I'm letting that happen. And I wonder if people in Castle Hill are also as suspicious. What would you do? Would you sleep out at night? Would you try and find a tent? I don't know. And, and imagine if someone actually lets you into their house, right? You share the gospel with them. They're like, oh, yeah, that sounds really cool. I want to hear more. You know, come and stay in my bed or my couch. Would you even allow yourself to stay there? Would you feel intrusive? Would it be, like, really weird? Would you be highly suspicious of this person who is a total stranger who accepts you into their house, I think. For some of us, it'd be pretty strange, wouldn't it? It'd be a pretty difficult challenge for us to do. It would be rather extreme of us, wouldn't it? And I wonder if most of us would just break down in fear or paralysis of some sort or a mental breakdown and you know, start to think of the worst possible thing that could happen, you know, like we die of starvation or exhaustion or something like that. Um, And yet I think this is precisely what Jesus is asking his disciples to do, isn't it? He's asking them to go out to the surrounding villages and to proclaim the kingdom. He's saying, rely on me, don't take anything for the journey, heal the sick, cast out demons, just go and do it. And then when it's all done, come back and tell me how you went. Now, some of you might argue, sure, times are different and things have changed, right? Our culture is different. Sydney, modern 21st century Sydney is different to 1st century Jerusalem, and and I agree with you. But the truth is, the lessons that Jesus is trying to teach, the experiences that he's trying to give to the disciples, the mission 
that he's given them, the urgency with which it needs to be completed, the need for people to hear the gospel, the heart of God, all of that remains the same. The necessity for us to be about the kingdom has not changed and will not change. So today I want to suggest three things that we can learn from this challenge that Jesus has laid down for his disciples. How can we be better disciples of Jesus? How can we be people who are courageous and mission-minded? And how can we reproduce these qualities in those around us? So my first point is this. We rely on God's power and authority. Luke 9 verse 1. One day Jesus called together his 12 disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Power is the strength, ability, or capacity that enables you to do something. Uh, in Greek, it's the word dunamis. If you have the power or the dunamis, you can lift heavy weights like Joe or Brad. Uh, in Acts 1.8, it uses the same word, dunamis. It says, but you will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The word authority, on the other hand, is quite similar, but, but authority is the right or permission to do a task that comes from being in a position of power. Uh, now, in the Greek, that word is exousia. So give me, let me give you an example, Matthew seven twenty-eight. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, exousia, and not as their teachers of the law. You see, Jesus' teaching was greater than those given by other people because he had the authority, he had the right and position of power to teach as one directly sent from God. He had the authority of God stamped all over his teaching. So imagine this, we go out this, on mission this afternoon and you're approached by this gang of thugs, they have the power, the dunamis, to take your wallet and phone, which you should have left here at church, but they don't have the authority or the exousia to do it. They have no legal right to ask you for it. And as they're taking you of your wallet that you should have left at home, a lone policeman by himself, he comes and he shouts, stop, and he commands them to stop. He has the authority to command them to stop. But unless he has some sort of weapon, he probably does not have the power, the dunamis, to stop them. Fortunately for us, Jesus gives his disciples both the power and the authority to cast out demons, to preach the good news, and to heal the sick. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and gives us access to that power. The authority that we have is not really ours, but it's God's delegated authority upon which we act. Ultimately, it's only by God's power and his authority which we can carry out his mission. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. When we rely on his power and his authority, it causes us to turn to God in prayer and to seek him first. It causes us to cling to him and to depend on him. Just as a police officer would never leave their badge or gun when they're on duty, we need to constantly rely on Jesus' delegated authority and his power as we carry out his mission. Practically, that'll mean that we're constantly in communion with God. As Joe said last week, when it comes to discipleship, there has to be divine involvement. There has to be a reliance on the Spirit to lead us, just as Jesus did. 
One very obvious sign that we're doing things in our own strength and not relying on God is when we're not constantly in dialogue with God. You know, you have those days where you reflect on on the day that's just gone by and, and you think, man, I didn't even think about God for one second today. I can't even recall a time today that I communed with God, that I asked him how, what he was thinking or, or how he could lead me or to give me opportunities. If we are to carry out the mission with God's power and God's authority, then we'll be interacting with God throughout every hour of every day. We'll be open to his leading, we'll be sensitive to his spirit, we'll be looking for opportunities to see as God sees. I remember I had a day just like this on Wednesday this week. Uh, I was at work and we were doing this kind of system design for this new feature that we were, were making. And there was just something about it that didn't sit right with me. There was something about it that um, I just couldn't really quite communicate very well with my team colleagues. Uh, but there wasn't something right about it and I couldn't really articulate it. And so we had this really kind of frustrating discussion about it. And in the end, nothing really changed. Um, but it was really frustrating for me because I knew there was something not quite right and I just couldn't convince my t- colleagues that, that that was the case. And uh, I remember it was kind of just eating away at me a little bit in the back of my mind. And, and that night, I remember si- sitting, sleeping, sorry, s- lying down in bed. Uh, and I was just thinking about it. It was just turning over in my mind. And, uh, and I realized that I just had not asked God for help in that situation at all. Right? No, I was here, I was frustrated talking to my colleagues, and I just hadn't even thought to consider God in that conversation. I was doing it purely by my own logic and by my own strength. And so I thought about it some more and I kind of came up with a solution and I committed it all to God. I said, God, I need your help you know, to communicate this and to be able to express uh, what I think is wrong with this design that we come up with. And so I asked him for help in being able to deal with my work colleagues as well. And so the next morning, uh, with that kind of new intention, uh, I explained it to my work colleague, and in roughly half an hour, we had it all sorted. I'd be able to explain what the issue was. Clearly, they understood what it was, and we came up with a solution that worked for everyone. And that was just, it was actually just God, really, when I gave him the opportunity to intervene and, and to be a part of my day. Uh, and, and that was awesome, right? He helped me that day, not in kind of a big, powerful, miraculous way, but he did give me clarity. He gave me wisdom. He gave me some patience, and, and he gave me favor in the eyes of my colleagues to get through a frustrating situation. When we rely on God, not only does he enable us to do the task, but we'll also have greater confidence as we go about it. It means that we don't have to be so timid or overcome by fear, just like we all were when I suggested we go out. Because it's not our strength that really matters. It's God's strength that matters. And God is all-powerful. We don't have to worry about failing because as long as we're faithful in doing what he says, God will do the rest. When it comes to discipling others, it should be pretty evident by the way that we turn to God in every situation and rely on him. It will naturally show as we become eager to pray and take every opportunity to do so. When we're ministering to others, there will be a boldness in our prayers as we trust God to do his thing. Some of you know about Shin Wan. Uh, He was introduced uh, to me and to some of us uh, through Pastor John. He's one of Pastor John's friends. Uh, Now, Shin Wan has a disease called MND, motor neurone disease. Uh, If you remember, a little while back, there was this ice bucket challenge for ALS. 
Uh, ALS is basically the same form, is a form of MND. Uh, what is MND? So MND, the N stands for neurons, and neurons are the nerve cells uh, that control your muscles. And so this disease eventually causes those uh, muscles and those nerve cells to die, uh, meaning that it becomes basically impossible to move, uh, to speak, and eventually to breathe or, or to eat. Uh, there is no cure for it. Uh, and so one day after church, uh, Chris, and, Chris and I decided to visit Shinwan in person. We'd been praying for him you know, for, for probably weeks or even months at this, by this stage. And, and we decided to go and pray for him. Uh, Pastor John shared with us, it was actually quite sad. He was saying how when he first got the disease, which was probably a few years ago now, three or four years ago now, uh, lots of people went and they prayed for him. Uh, and they you know, encouraged him. But as time went on, uh, that started to kind of fizzle out. And so Pastor John uh, was one of the very few people who, was, who continued to meet with him. And so Chris and I decided to go and to pray for him in person. And, and it was actually a really wonderful time for us uh, just, to, just to minister to him and actually to be encouraged by him as well. Uh, it was really funny because he was saying um, when he heard that we were Pastor John's friends, he thought, oh, you know, it's going to be someone of kind of Pastor John's vintage, right? And <laughs> And he, and he sees us, kind of younger people, I guess. Uh, and he said he was so encouraged that, you know, that I guess young people would come and, and, come and visit him. And, and it was just really good to be an encouragement to him. Um, more recently, Carla has also been joining us to, to go and to pray for him. And, and she too shares in the privilege of, of ministering to our brother Shinwan and his family in need. Uh, and in return, we get to witness his perseverance and his faith and his endurance despite the great difficulty that he's in. I do pray for him. Uh, currently, he cannot really move much. He, he can tilt his head uh, back and forth, and uh, he can speak, but it's very belabored now. So please keep him in your prayers as well. Uh, but we're believing for God's power to, to touch his life and to intervene in his situation. We're relying on God's power to heal and to reverse the damage that this disease has done to his nerves. And we're exercising God's authority in declaring his life is protected and untouchable by the evil one. Being a disciple of Jesus does not necessarily mean doing big, scary things like going into Castle Hill and knocking on doors necessarily and, and begging for lodging. It does, however, mean that we rely on his power and his authority to carry out his mission. So let me ask you, in what areas of your life are you failing to rely on God's power for? When are you oblivious to God's leading? How often are there days that just roll by where God has no say in what you do? When you're at work, do you constantly ask God for help? When you're at home just doing your thing, do you allow God the opportunity to interrupt you there? Point number two, we rely on God's provision. In verse 3 of the text that we read, he told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. Why does Jesus tell them to do this? Is it wrong for them to have these things, to take them with them when they're going on a potentially a very long journey? Did Jesus want to set them up for failure? No, of course he didn't. I'm generally the type of guy who doesn't plan things very well, or at all. Uh, I'm definitely more the kind of person who will just say, let's just get there and see what happens. 
Uh, and so last weekend, that kind of happened. We uh, went to Melbourne. It was Chris, um, Cass, and Yenzi, and I. And uh, we went to Melbourne. I had no idea what we were doing other than meeting Mimi and Didi. And, uh, and it was good. Uh, now, for someone like myself, who lacks kind of the ability to plan for the future, you'd think that Jesus' words to go and take nothing would be a pretty straightforward and easy thing for me to do. But it wasn't really. It's not really. Um, now, I can just imagine if Jesus was here in the 21st century and he said, hey, you know, go and do this, go and take nothing for the journey. Um, you know, I can imagine myself saying, well, Jesus, I didn't plan to take anything anyway, so what's the problem? Uh, on the other hand, Chris, Cass, and Yenzi, they would probably drop to the ground in shock, hyperventilating over hand sanitizer, spare tissues, or so- some such thing. I can already hear in my head, and I think this, these questions were actually asked on the trip. How are you going to clean your hands to eat after going to the bathroom? What if it gets cold and I don't have a scarf? What if it gets hot? I don't want to have to carry my jumper around with me everywhere. For a traveler in Jesus' day, not carrying a staff meant that if they got tired on a long journey, then well, it was just a lot harder to walk. If they came across a hostile animal or, or thieves, they wouldn't be able to defend themselves using a staff. If they didn't have a bag, it meant they literally couldn't carry anything else. Even if they came across someone who wanted to give them a whole bunch of food, unless they could use it immediately, it was going to be of no use. If they didn't take any bread, it meant that they would have to rely on God to feed them. No money meant they'd have to rely on the generosity of strangers. No extra shirt for a one- to two-week trip. Even I don't do that. But Jesus makes it clear. Take nothing extra. Don't pack for every situation. Don't pre-plan. Don't over-prepare. Don't over-plan. Don't come up with an emergency contingency plan. Don't consider all the what-ifs. What if this? What if that scenarios? Just travel light. Forget about all this extra stuff. Why does Jesus do this? Well, I think we all know it's because God wants them to rely on him, to rely on himself to provide. He wants them to learn to live day by day by faith in the most practical way, by relying on God for their physical needs. He wants them to experience the abundant provision of God and to increase their faith to a new level in his ability to care for them. God wants to bless them and show them that he is altogether sufficient for all they need. Jesus wants to rid them the distraction of worrying about material things. He wants them to be focused on one thing and one thing alone, the mission at hand, the work of proclaiming the gospel, of healing the sick, of extending God's kingdom. He wants them to live out what he preached in Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. And with that same kingdom focus, Jesus tells them to stay put in the first house that they received into. In other words, they're to be content with the first person who will offer them lodging, and not to spend any extra effort or energy in finding the most comfortable place they can. They're to bless that person who opens their home and and then get straight down to business. I think it's very easy for us today to get caught up in wanting more things to want more money, a bigger house, a better car. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Lawrence was here, and I love his outlook on money. He says, if you, 
that he has no financial problems because he has no finance. But the Bible's warnings about the temptation of worldly possessions and money are real. You cannot serve two masters. The rich young man went, man went away sad because he had great wealth. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There's a reason why Jesus spoke more about money than any other topic aside from the kingdom of God. It's because it's just so easy for us to get caught up in being driven by money. When it comes to decisions that make financial sense, most of us are pretty good about that. But what about the spiritual impact of those decisions? Why is it so much easier for us to justify spending money on ourselves than it is to give it away? How often do we choose a path that makes financial sense, but not necessarily spiritual sense? God wants his disciples to know that he can provide for them and in abundance. He wants them to grow in their faith and to know that if God has called them to the ministry, then God will also provide the means to carry out that ministry. Just as he is the one who granted them the power and the authority to accomplish the task, so too will he be the one who provides for their physical needs. When they seek first his kingdom, God will provide all the rest. No worries. How does God actually end up providing for the disciples? What does he do? Does he rain down manna from heaven? Well, he has in the past, but not in this case. He uses other people. He uses people like you and I. He uses people who welcome the gospel message into their lives. And God wants those who welcome them and their message to have the privilege of sharing in their ministry. For those of us who have the means, God wants us to provide for those who, are devote, who have devoted themselves to kingdom vocations. Luke 10, 7, Jesus tells his disciples when they walk him into a house to stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. And in Matthew ten forty one, Jesus says, whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. When we contribute financially to the work of the gospel, we partner with Jesus in building his kingdom. We become a blessing to those who are on the mission field because we enable them to concentrate their efforts on the ministry. They no longer have the burden of having to worry about material things. And God's promise is that when we do that, when we meet their needs, we too will be rewarded. Now it's actually worth noting that Jesus didn't intend for his disciples to always go out and, and do mission carrying nothing. In Luke 22, 35 and 37, Jesus actually reverses this instruction. He says this, Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. His point to his disciples and to us today is not to restrict, restrict every time we go out to carrying the bare minimum. No, rather now that the disciples had experienced the, prov the provision of God and realized that they lacked nothing, they would be able to trust God in situations that were even more extreme or perhaps even more dangerous. For foregoing the basics was no longer necessary in stretching their faith all the time. 
When God calls us to minister to others, he will give us all that we need to succeed. He's the source of our dunamis, our power, the source of exousia, his authority, as well as our physical needs. And even beyond those things, God will provide as well. He'll give us the passion that we need, the wisdom to discern, the words to say, the strength that we can endure, the patience that we can grow, the grace that we might overcome. 2 Peter 1.3 in the NLT puts it like this. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. In Psalm 23 verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. We disciple others by being generous to those who labor for the gospel and we prioritize his kingdom before our own needs. So let me ask you, what material things are hindering you from advancing the gospel? What things do you need to forego in order to be a more effective witness for Christ? What stops you from ministering to others? Perhaps in your mind there are a thousand things that could go wrong. Don't even entertain them. Don't plan even for them. Trust that God will provide even in those situations and devote your energy solely to the mission at hand instead. How can you increase the amount that you give to support those who have dedicated their lives to the work of God? Point number three, we move on when we face rejection. From the text that we read, verses five and six. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust from your, off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Back in 2009, I went on a short-term mission with uh, Uncle Pac, who some of you may know. Um, and it was very, very much was, a very, it was an ad hoc mission trip. Um, aside really from the flights that we had booked, we had nothing planned. Um, I guess our very loose plan was to go to the church and, and to ask members of the church if they had unsaved family and friends. And when someone would volunteer, we would go back to the village that they came from and we would share with their family and, and then we'd go to the other, the other places in that village and, and share the gospel with them as well. Uh, obviously, I was quite nervous about this, so, you know, being my kind of first time in the Philippines and having that, done that kind of thing. Uh, but it was actually just miraculous to see how people responded when we would share the gospel. Uh, practically everyone that we went to, every kind of little house or hut that we went into, we would share the gospel and they would be glad and, and overjoyed to receive uh, the gospel, to receive Jesus into their lives. And it was just really an awesome time. Uh, now, I remember distinctly going to this um, old lady's hut and, uh, and, you know, all that day and the day before, we'd kind of done the same thing and seen people come to Christ and I thought, all right, God, we're just going to do the same thing and, and we're going to see her come to Christ. And, uh, and kind of I thought, you know, it's a done deal, right? Uh, so it was much to my surprise when, when we asked her to respond after sharing the gospel that she flatly refused us. She quite plainly told us that she didn't believe that, that Jesus was God and, and she didn't believe that she needed to repent of her sins, just like that. Um, now, I'm not completely sure because we were using translators, but I think one of them even said the line, but our friends from Australia have come all the way here just to tell you the gospel. 
Now, uh, I don't know about the others that I was with, but I was pretty surprised. I was kind of shocked. I thought we'd do our thing and, and you know, God would do his thing and, and you know, that would be it. But I learned an important lesson that day and at least a, an important reminder that day. The message that we carry, the message, the good news of Jesus is a message that will divide. It divides people. To some, it's a life-giving message of freedom to be rejoiced over. To others, it is rubbish. It is not worth a second thought. Where one might love it and respond with joy and gratitude, you'll have another who hates it and who will mock you for it. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus knew that his message was divisive. He knew that people would reject him. He knew that he would face stiff opposition. In Luke chapter 4, where Jesus reads in the synagogue, the Jews are furious, and so they plan to throw him off a cliff. In Luke chapter 6, he forgives the sins of a paralyzed man, and the Pharisees are furious with what he's saying, and they begin to plot against him. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man, but the township, they're overcome with fear, and they ask him to leave. And so up until this point in chapter 9, Jesus is no stranger to rejection, and neither are his disciples really and to to ensure that his disciples are prepared in advance for rejection he gives them this advice as we've read if people do not welcome you leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them back in those days when religious jews would pass through gentile towns as they left the town they would shake the dust from their feet they did this as a sign to show that they were completely separate from the Gentiles who they were passing through. They would not even tolerate having the dust from the town on their feet. And so when Jesus tells his disciples to do this, it's to serve as a sign, as a warning to that town of the consequences of rejecting Jesus' message. When our efforts in sharing the gospel are rejected, we are to make known the consequences of that choice and to move on. An honest and clear gospel message will include a warning of what happens to those who reject God's message of salvation. If we have diligently and lovingly shared the good news with someone but are rejected, we are not responsible for their decision. We need to accept that our message will divide its hearers and move on to others who God wants us to reach. Our job is to faithfully present the message in a clear and loving manner, not to twist people's arms into submission. This is not to say that we give up on those who do not immediately receive us. It does not mean that we are to condemn condemn them or to disrespect them. Ultimately, God is the only one who knows a person's heart, and so we are to be satisfied with the opportunity that we've been given to sow, to plant, and to water seeds that we know that God alone can grow. We don't know how God will use the message that we've shared, but we do know that God's timing is perfect. You or other faithful servants may be called later on to be a consistent witness to that person. What Jesus doesn't want to happen is for us to be so discouraged that we give up and fail to reach the many others who also desperately need to hear about Jesus. We are not to grow hard-hearted or be put off by negative responses. Rather, we are to be about the mission. 
When we left that old lady's house, I was disappointed. I was disappointed because she did not get to experience the joy of meeting Jesus and being freed from her sin. But in faith, I trust that God has sent others and will continue to reach her, desiring that none should perish. God was teaching me not to trust in a specific method or a formulaic approach to sharing the gospel to bring someone to Christ, as though it could. No one, no, unless God works in that individual, nothing I do or say can bring anyone closer to him. Uh, last weekend when we were in Melbourne, we got into a spiritual conversation with one of our Uber drivers. Or rather, I got into a spiritual conversation with our Uber driver while the three girls in the back totally decided to not help me at all in any way humanly possible. Anyway, our driver, he started to ask me a bunch of philosophical questions about humanity, love, self-worth, and so on. All right, Yenzi says she was praying in the back, so... <laughs> Karin says she's too now. I mean, I didn't feel any prayers, but that's, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> so I began to explain the problem of sin and, and you know, I wanted to explain the unconditional love of God that he has for his people. Uh, but it quickly became apparent to me that our driver was not all that interested in hearing about Jesus. He was much more interested in sharing about some of the spiritual experiences that he had and, uh, and what he had experienced in India and, and so on and so forth. And that was all fine and well. And, and so instead I tried to change tact and so I tried to share with him some of the ways that Jesus had impacted my life and how he changed me for the better. Uh, but by the end of it all, it had really turned into a one-sided monologue in which he told me about his life. And so finally, we pulled up outside our apartment block and I thanked him for his insights and for driving us, and that was kind of it. Did I shake off the dust of his Toyota Corolla and move on? Yes, I did. <laughs> now, I don't know the impact of you know, what little I got to share with him, but I do trust that God will send to him other Christian passengers who will be bold enough to share the same enthusiasm, to share similar life-changing experience, experiences that they can credit to Jesus. And in faith, I pray that someone else will get the opportunity to lead him to the Lord, and I'm satisfied with the part that I got to play. When we face rejection, we move on. If we've been pushed over into the dirt, we shake it off like Taylor Swift. We thank God for the opportunity, and we continue to proclaim his kingdom until he comes back again. Jesus never asked any of his disciples to do anything that he had not already shown them how to do. He had driven out demons, he'd cured diseases, he'd healed the sick, He'd proclaimed the gospel dozens, if not hundreds of times, before he asked his disciples to do the same thing on their own. He had shown them the ropes, and now it was their time to shine. It wasn't until they went out for themselves that the disciples learnt to rely on Jesus' power and exercise his authority. It wasn't until they had the privilege of going out on their own that they could say totally that they lacked nothing because of God's provision. In Luke chapter 10 and in parallel verses in the other synoptic gospels, we hear of how they rejoice that the demons fled or the lame walked or the blind were given sight in Jesus' name because of what they did. 
They got to experience the miraculous provision of God in sustaining their every need for the entire time that they were away from Jesus. Not once did they lack anything. And when they faced rejection, of which they inevitably did, they moved on, fearless and unshaken, to the remaining lost sheep of Israel. When's the last time that you went out and shared the gospel with someone else? Was it this week? Was it this month? When's the last time that you offered to pray for someone who was sick or struggling? Did you rely on God's power and his authority? Have you been seeking him daily or even on an hourly basis so that you can be a more effective witness, a more effective disciple for him and his kingdom? When's the last time that you brought someone alongside you to show them the ropes, to show them what it is to live for Jesus daily? What stuff is in your life that complicates it, that distracts you, that prevents you from sharing Jesus with others? When was the last time that you were in total dependence on God, perhaps for your own physical needs? If you've been doing the work of God, how do you handle rejection? What do you do when people turn you down? It's inevitable that Jesus' message will divide. Are you persevering? Are you being led by the Spirit to other opportunities? Are you trusting that God's timing is perfect? Pastor Joe will often end with this thought. I think it's from Henry Blackaby, perhaps. He says, What you do now will reveal what you think about God. With the knowledge that we've been given, with the insights that God has given us from his word this morning, what you do with those now will reveal what you think about God. If everything that Jesus is sharing with us today just sounds too hard, too complicated, not worth the effort, then perhaps what you think about God is not really who God is. But if today you are convicted, and if today that conviction really challenges you and results in real-life change, then we can rejoice. We can rejoice together because it is God who has revealed himself and who is working in you right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are our God, that you are our God who has sent us Jesus, and that through your word we can see how Jesus lived. I thank you that we can experience the same kinds of things that Jesus experienced in bringing people to your kingdom. Father, I thank you that you've given us clear instruction of how we are to follow you, of how we are to go out to proclaim your kingdom, how we are to heal the sick, to cast out demons. Father, I thank you that we can share in this awesome privilege of ministering to others and seeing others come into your kingdom. Lord, I pray right now that you would not only convict us, but that you would change us that you would shape us, mold us, and make us into people who really please you with our lives. I pray that we'll be effective witnesses for you, that we be people who are truly disciple makers, who desire that others would also know your love and desire to earnestly bring others to you as well. Father, there's been many questions and many thoughts, many challenges that you've given to us this morning. Father, I pray that we would take those to heart and make active changes in our lives, that we might honour you 
more fully. Father, thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I think, I think in, instead of closing with a song, I think we should close in prayer. And what I mean by that, if I can invite the prayer team up, I think it's a very, a very blessed word this morning through Jonathan, and really appreciative of that. Um, if you'd like to be upstanding, um, but if you want to be prayed for, I think that's a real definite challenge that's been put forth this morning for our own lives. Uh, if you want to be prayed for, we've got a prayer team to come up, if you want to be prayed for in regards to your own situation, prayed for because there's somebody that is not saved, who does not know Jesus in your family, to pray for them, um, to pray for boldness, to step out and, and to go talk to someone, whether it be at Borkham Hills or Cherrybrook or Stanhope, whatever it might be, where we could just get up and be bold enough to rely on God, rely on his power and his authority, uh, to rely on what he's doing and, and to have the wisdom to move on when we're called to. Um, so I was really blessed by that. So if you want to be prayed for, then come on up and we pray for you this, this, uh, this morning. Um, I'm just going to pray now, and then we'll break for the morning tea. But don't, don't go away this morning and think, yeah, nice word. Don't, don't feel moved. Do something about it. And a lot of people feel moved and do nothing. We all feel a certain way. It's not about feelings. It's like, let's put our prayers into action. Let's put our convictions into action. Um, let's pray now. Father, we thank you so much for this morning's word through your servant, Jonathan. Father, I thank you for the commission that you have given us, not as individuals, but also as a church, to go out to all the world and preach the gospel, to go out to all the world and make disciples, to follow the example that you have set for us yourself. And did you ask of us the very thing that you yourself did, to proclaim the kingdom, to go out and heal the sick, to cast out demons, to proclaim this gospel that transforms people's lives. Thank you for the authority and for the power you have given us, the, the dunamis and the exousia that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, we will not be the same, that we will not be content in going through the motions, that we will not be comfortable and keep our seats warm in a church, but rather reach beyond these four walls and take a gospel message that can transform life and lives and bring people to know you. Father, help us to be bold soldiers of Jesus Christ. Help us to stand firm among your promises and to, Father, reach out with this love that has reached out and touched us. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you this morning and ask for you to have your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.